Hi, friends. Thank you for tuning in to the Interfaith America podcast with me, Ibu Patel. We'd love your help in growing the community of listeners. Please review, subscribe, and share. And if you want to talk more about this podcast, feel free to tweet me at Ibu Patel. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This is the Interfaith America podcast, and I'm Ibu Patel. We are no longer a Judeo-Christian nation. That's not a statement of opposition. It is an invitation to the next chapter. Judeo-Christian did good work for a century. And I actually mean that in a very concrete way. The term was not given to Moses on Sinai. It was not written by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. It was essentially created in the 1930s. It was a civic creation, not one that was especially historically or theologically accurate. Its purpose was to engage with and defeat the anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism of the times. And it won. It's a lot easier to be a Jew or a Catholic in America in 1990 than in 1930. But the nation has changed. The demographics have changed. There are now twice as many Muslims and Buddhists in America as Episcopalians, just as many Muslims and Buddhists as there are ELCA Lutherans. And guess what? The median age of Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus is 20 years younger than white Christians. We live in an entirely new American religious landscape. So we need a new title for this chapter in American religious history. We're calling it Interfaith America, And we like that so much that we named the organization after it. And of course, the podcast too. If I had to select the person most responsible for creating a conversation about the intersection of faith, meaning, social life, and the universe in our culture, it would be Krista Tippett. Her radio show, On Being, has for nearly 20 years been required listening for millions and millions of people. It has now moved fully to podcast. I was first on the show over a decade ago when it was called Speaking of Faith. The way Krista interviewed me was different than any other journalists. It's as if she had actually read the book I had written, selected certain lines and ideas herself rather than have a producer hand her a list of questions, and wanted to push both of us to deeper places. Turns out that she had read the book. She really takes her guests seriously. That's just one of many things that makes Krista special as a journalist and as a thought leader. Krista is also a friend. We talk about family issues, institution building, social healing, and of course, Dean in Dunya, faith and world. She's an American treasure, author of numerous beautiful books, a remarkable speaker, a creator of spaces where people can be more fully human together, winner of a National Humanities Medal and a Peabody, and a dear friend. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Somewhere between a dozen and 10 million people have said to me, I heard this on On Being, and it changed the way I approached X, or I thought about Y. So for me, the obvious question to the person in the studio is, what have you heard in the studio on On Being that has changed the way you've approached your work, your life? 
the nation, the world, religion, whatever. What have you heard in the studio as the professional interviewer trying to put that out into the world for other people that you're like, oh man, I'm not sure if I'm ever going to be the same after that. Well, that is an amazing question. And it's a daunting question. You know, here we are, Ifu. You and I kind of started our our projects around the same time. And I we never would have been able to imagine where we would be right now in 2022. And it's a hard time in the life of the world. And I feel that, right? I feel that deeply. And I think the cumulative effect of the conversations that I have is to to see and really honor the reality of what I call the generative landscape of our time. And it's, it's a lifeline because what I get from the breaking news, you know, it would break me, right? If, if that were the narrative and there's truth there and there's truth that is important is out there. But I always see this, this larger, wilder, more humane picture that is also as true, as serious. And it is what, I don't want to use this language of what can save us, right? It's not that simple. But our human capacities to be generous, to be loving in muscular ways, to be socially creative, to be kind, to orient towards goodness and wholeness, those things are also fierce and alive. And I feel like every conversation I have, including the conversations I've had with you over the years, reminds me that that is true and adds kind of infinite variation to what that means, what that looks like in a particular life, in a particular place, in a particular field. And I'm really grateful that I have that now. Yeah. Thank you for that. I love this notion of, of the accumulative conversation and how different things make sense to us in different ways over time, right? Like if I had heard Vincent Harding say on your podcast, when I was 20, I live in a nation that does not yet exist. I would have had a very different response than I did when I actually heard it when I was 35 or 38. And I think that that's part of the beauty of stories is they live in our bones and they come front of mind in, in different ways. And Jeff Tweedy is one of my favorite musicians. He's frontman of Wilco. And in a book that he wrote, he says, Wilco's not really a band anymore. It's really an art collective. And it produces albums and it has shows, but it also has a music festival. And it also has this variety of newsletters which promote other people's music. And it has a studio where all kinds of bands meet and experiment musically. And they each have their own projects, musical and written. And he's like, we're really an art collective. And I, I'm curious, what's On Being? It's certainly not just a radio show. H how would you describe what On Being is? A couple of years ago, I started playing around with the, with the descriptor a media and public life initiative. And I'm not sure that that's where we're going to end, but I think that that, is, that tells some of the story of the evolution. I was just speaking with somebody earlier today about, you'll understand this, like the conversation I was having was about on being in the kind of podcast radio landscape. And I said, 
when we think about who our kindred organizations are, our kind of peers and colleagues, our ecosystem, it's only tangentially other podcasts, right? I mean, what I care about and what I feel like what On Being is about is a particular kind of conversation, a set of questions, a quality of conversation, speaking together differently that leads to living together differently. And, and podcasting is a form, right? It's a place where we do that. But, but the important thing is the conversation. And as we've evolved, it's actually about us not creating more media, but really leaning in creatively to the impact that this conversation has and the ways people take it into their lives and into their communities. And how can we serve that? And how can we serve, you know, I think our content works at the intersection of inner life, outer presence to the world and life together. Hold on. I just want to underscore that, right? Because that is beautiful. Yeah. So in the evolution from speaking of faith to on being, the realization I had, or the thing I was able to articulate is that one of the reasons speaking of faith wasn't a good descriptor of what happened in the show is that part of the baggage that people brought to it is that people of faith have answers, right? And that's actually not the truth of this part of life. It's so much about questions. And what I started to realize eventually is, and when we changed the name to on being, is that what I'm pursuing the lens we're taking is on the animating questions behind our traditions and behind this whole part of life. And these are kind of the, endure, the ancient enduring human questions. You know, what does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? I think in the 21st century, that third question is absolutely inextricable from the from the basic question of what it means to be human. And I feel like our show, On Being, has been kind of moving into that inextricability. You know, the words, we, these are the words we've been playing with. You know, the mission statement is pursuing deep thinking and moral imagination, social courage and joy to renew inner life, outer life, and life together. So I think that's what it's become for me. What is the human transformation that makes sustained long-term transformation, generative transformation possible? That is what we need to be walking into as a country, as a species um, in this century. So I don't know if I answered your question. But yes, of course you did. I wouldn't have said any of that 20 years ago, right? right. That's all new or it's all evolution. So one of the things that strikes me is you could have said all of that in books and in interviews, the entity that is on being is a staff. And you are not saying to some other CEO, you go figure this out. I am going to be the head and I'm going to write the stuff that I want to write. And then you run the organization. You are the CEO. Yeah. And I'm curious. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> do you, I'm, do you enjoy that? Do you enjoy the process of, okay, I'm going to figure out a mission statement for the organization. I'm going to figure out a staff structure. Not, not that you're alone in doing this, right? But you are building, dare we say it, an institution that has these multiple initiatives. And there are many people in your position who would just say, I'm the writer and the thinker and the articulator. Do you, do you embrace the CEO role because you enjoy it or you're like, 
only I'm going to be able to do this the way that I want to do it? Well, a couple of things. One of the things I realized in the last couple of years is that if this is what the On Being Project is about, what I just described, then we have to invest in the quality of our interior life as an organization. We have to actually be embodying as an organization what we want to be helping curate and nourish in the world. And so we've actually done a lot of that investing actually for the last like three to four years. You know, sure, I'm gonna I'm gonna own this that I I don't step back and let other people do the work. I there's also in me a 20th century perfectionist person who works to the point of exhaustion, which you and I have talked about, right? And that's, and I'm, you know, I'm very much a, a product of, of our culture, kind of a high performing product of our culture, which values high performance. And one of the things I've moved to is I, I have to, this can't be a culture in which I'm an exhausted leader and leading is hard. As you know, it's hard. It's lonely. So we've moved to a distributed leadership model. I have two colleagues who really are my peers. There's a vision that I hold and there's a voice that I have that is distinct and uniquely authoritative. And and they also have authoritative voices. You you know, you said you're not a radio show anymore. And in fact, we're going to end the radio show this summer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for me, those questions that rose up in our world, in our society, in our world, in March, 2020 and April, 2020, where we had to ask what is essential and what is non-essential. I am waiting for us to get back to those questions collectively. Cause one of the things we understood when we posed those questions is that we have not organized our life around those caregiving. We don't reward the professions that, that we actually need when everything else falls apart, that actually keep us together, body, mind, and soul. And I felt like we had to ask as an organization, um, what is essential, what is non-essential? And so one of the reasons we are ending the radio show and, and, and continuing with the podcast in seasons, which also will free up seasons of my life to be much more focused on presence to the world and on life together. It's because I think, I think that is the moment we are in. And that's also part of this evolution of becoming ever more true to, to what we're about. And always kind of asking, how can we be most deeply of service? And I think some of what we're going to be doing in the future is going to be more quiet conversations and quiet convenings, but really deep relationship building and hard conversations that can't be had in public right now. So I'm just sharing with you kind of the newest evolutionary place we're in. And I'm really happy. Wow. Thank you. And I'm happy that you're happy. And I mean, it's striking because you're at the top of your game and the conversations that you think ha- need to happen in the culture, we think happen because Krista facilitates that. Yeah, I think, first of all, you know, it's hard for me to take in when you say things like that. 
that I facilitate the conversations you want to be hearing. I'm I'm still going to be having those conversations. Ibo, I've been doing 52 weeks of radio a year for 20 years, you know, and it's it's a deadline driven life. Um, there will be ways, uh, and this kind of risky move forces us to step up with a lot of innovation and energy to be out there in different places. And, and people are spending their lives and spending their attention in different places now. It's Dylan, right? It's Dylan in the early 60s who is ensconced in the folk music scene and is the blowing in the wind Dylan playing the purest scene to the hilt. And then he starts listening to rock and roll. And he thinks to himself, what do I do if I, what happens if I plug in? And there he is at the Newport Folk Festival in 65 and he plugs in and he does Maggie's Farm and people boo him. And he's like, you know what? I am an artist. I am not, you don't own me. I'm an artist. I'm hearing new things about music in my mind. You're perfectly free to do what you want, but it's time for me to follow the, the soundscapes in my mind. Maybe you're hearing things in the universe and in your mind that you're, you're following. Yeah, I think that's true. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is brought to you by a generous grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. So 100 years from now, a great historian thinks to herself, I want to get a read on American religion in the first quarter of the 21st century. Hmm. And to do that, I'm going to listen to Krista Tippett's 52 shows a year for the 20 years she did the show, right? What does that great historian conclude is happening in the world of American religion and spirituality and kind of inner life, outer presence, life together from listening to your show for over 20 years, the way it's changed, who you've had on that's different, right? But what, really, what better cultural text is there in the repository of your interviews for 20 years. Oh, that's again, so fascinating. See how much I've learned from you about asking questions. <laughs> you have. Um, I mean, you've been watching this along with me and participating along with me. I mean, it's been a time of such fluidity and catharsis. What that historian would not experience in on being are the, the phenomena that I was kind of trying to, balance out, I, the, you know, the phenomena that maybe got the most attention in official places, you know, the strident religiosity that burst into public life, this Christianity in the, in the late 20th century, where you had a few voices, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, who didn't just claim to speak for evangelical Christians or you know, fundamentalist Christians in Jerry Falwell's case, but really we're also given the microphone <laughs> by journalists. We're kind of taken to be how religious people sound, what they say, what they care about, what they advocate for. And then, you know, Islam had its own version of that scenario. You know, then the September 11, 2001 attacks were, were a catastrophic introduction of an entire religion of billions of people to many Americans, for example, right? Really thinking about Islam for the first time. 
you know, one of the things I was very concerned with actually in the earliest years was drawing out the diversity, not just within Christianity, but within evangelical Christianity. And, the, and when we had an evangelical president in the White House and also the diversity within Islam, you know, the spiritual, aesthetic, um, intellectual dimensions and variety of traditions within these traditions. That was a place that we started and trying to untangle things done in the name of religion from the actual dimensionality and depth of religions and also the way people live this part of their life. You know, another interesting chapter in this early 21st century was the rise of the new atheists, which I actually think was a reaction to kind of the rise of the strident religious. There were a lot of books sold there for about a year. You know, it was, it was quick, but it was um, kind of this meteoric rise of a few intellectuals who also made sweeping um, generalizations about religion from a very simplistic perspective. And often pitting science against religion, which is an old trope in America. I think that's something that has become possible in this century. You know, this science-religion debate is not true to the history of science or the history of religion. And I see this conversation that has arisen between these parts of our society, between these parts of the human enterprise, not even necessarily that scientists and theologians are talking to each other, but that what neuroscience, what evolutionary biology, what social psychology, what they are shining a light on, they have now become partners on this frontier that used to be more consigned to theologians and philosophers of asking, of illuminating what it means to be human. I mean, what we're learning about our bodies, about our brains, about our species is very often in kind of this amazing sync with intelligence that's been inside the religious traditions. And, yeah. and now it's being taken inside the laboratory. The Dalai Lama and neuroscience. Or the revision of evolutionary biology, which, you know, when I grew up was all about survival of the fittest and nature is red in tooth and claw and this new seeing that cooperation is a human superpower, right? That, that advance um, civilizationally has not come through competition alone or through survival alone. And it's just, it's something that wasn't acknowledged that is now acknowledged in the most serious places. Part of what you're doing in kind of reviewing the past quarter century, right? Is you're saying, I have seen many ideas hit the big screen and then, and then fall back down. And yeah, that's it, interesting. Right? Yeah. Like there's the religious right moment. There's the Islamist violence moment. There's the new atheist moment. There's the science versus religion moment. And some of these have a long history, but, you know, atheism has a long history. This trope of Islam is violent has a long history, but they're not always on the bestseller list and they're not always on the nightly news. And this, this sense of you're like, so I'm going to engage the topic of the day in a different way, right? I'm not going to ignore what people are seeing on television, but I'm going to enter, I'm going to show that there's many rooms in the mansion, so to speak. Yeah, I think the other one is 
is the spiritual but not religious, which is another simplification. What is astonishing about the early 21st century in the whole history of humanity is that this is really all cultures and civilizations for, for the most part have had religious underpinnings and religious and faith identities that were as much inherited as chosen. And we are the generation of our species, you know, in the West, but, but increasingly in other places where that is loosening. But the equation that I was encountering when I was first creating the show was that as society grows more secular, these traditions will just wither, right? Our need for this superstition will just fall away. And it's true that our religious institutions, like all of our institutions, the forms that came into the 21st century, do not work. And it's as true of medicine or school or politics as it is true of religion, right? That's about culture shift. But what I see and what I know you see is that the human spiritual impulse is as vigorous as ever. I think theological curiosity, even if people don't put those words to it, is alive in that spiritual but not religious world. I think that the the core impulses that drove our traditions, the desire to be of service, right? Those things, if anything, are reviving. And that's fascinating. Yes. I want a quick comment on uh, the point about a culture choosing its narrative, right? I mean, there's, there's, the, there's the great Alistair McIntyre line, right? I cannot tell you who I am or what I am going to do until I tell you the story or stories that I'm part of. And there's a, a sense there that that story or stories precede us, right? That the story of Christianity or of Islam or of America or whatever it is, that that comes before and will last longer. And we are a part of that river. That is that mindset. Uh, I'll just I'll just share this. I remember being in India, I don't know, 2008 or 2010. And, you know, I had fully embraced my Ismaili Muslim identity at the time, but I was just getting better at telling the stories. I was writing my first book, Acts of Faith. And uh, I was so I was saying to this person, Rafiq, who would hang around my grandmother's house in India, more and more I'm identifying as an Ismaili Muslim. I'm really proud of that. You know, saying this, if this was an achievement. And he looked at me a bit quizzically and he was like, your grandmother is an Ismaili. Your father is an Ismaili. Your mother is an Ismaili. Your grandfather is an Ismaili. And he looked at me as if like, did you not know what you were? <laughs> you know? And in yeah. India, in Muslim cultures in India, people have last names like Tabakawala, Panwala, Furniturewala. What is that? A wala is a merchant, somebody who sells things. So your profession is so much a part of your identity, becomes your last name, and it's passed down over the generations. You don't have a choice. There's no identify as. There is, this is who your ancestors were. And, you know, I don't want to make a judgment one way or another. This is not to be dismissive of choosing identities. It is only to say that is not the only way to have an identity. For most of human history, most human beings have inherited their yeah. identity and lived it out. Yeah. I am curious, like, how new ways of identifying as individuals, but also, as you're pointing out, as a culture, right? Yeah. America is deciding 
new ideas of identity. I'm, I'm, we're simply being observers here, right? This is I'm yeah. not judging. I mean, I so much appreciate that I had choice, that I could re-embrace my Ismaili Muslimness yeah. on my own terms, so to speak. But I think that there's value in simply inheriting things and living them out. I'm curious how, how you've... It's, it's exhausting to have to make this up. It's unnatural. As you say, it's, we've never had to do it before. One of the things that's fascinating to me is, you know, again, there would be somebody like that Peter Berger. Did you used to talk about Peter Berger? Peter Berger is we like all, my favorite. Yes. We we're all talking about Peter Berger 20 years ago. I haven't heard anybody quote him lately, but he was so quotable. And he was one of these sociologists who had declared God dead and religion dead. And it was, it would privatize and then it would go away altogether. And then by the end of the century, he was observing that they had been very wrong about that. And so just what's been fascinating to me is that within one generation, you have people who, sure, have no kind of religious vocabulary, like, like the ones that you and I just, just inhaled. They don't have that kind of formal moral formation. They also have no baggage and they are just, they have this very pure and searching curiosity. They just, but, you know, people are drawn back to look, to take seriously this part of themselves and to look for communities, uh, practices that, that speak to this part of themselves. And in many cases, you know, become religious again, uh, maybe in their family's lineage and, and maybe in another lineage. It's certainly searching, but none of us are pure, right? And what I mean by that is we are all laden with the cultural ideas of the time, which as you highlight, they come and go, which doesn't mean that they're not important. It's just that they're ephemeral. And I realized that in this moment when I was like, I identify as an Ismaili Muslim. And then I was confronted with this other cultural idea of what are you talking about? Like y- you are what your parents are. It's, it is interesting to think that what cultural ideas of the moment are people laden with as they, as they go about their search, which actually brings me to something of a different kind of question, which is, I wonder what might be different about American religion in 10 or 15 years that is just impossible to predict from, from now. Yeah. So I'm thinking of a conversation I had years ago, but that that has also really shaped the way I look at all of this with somebody named Nathan Schneider. I don't know if you heard that. It was a long time ago. Is that Chautauqua? I did not. He at that point was maybe in his early twenties and he was precisely one of these people who was raised by parents who kind of introduced him to all religions. Said, you know, we don't believe in anything, but we're gonna introduce you to all religions. And in the end, when he was 19, he converted to Catholicism and he became a, became a really serious Catholic. And he got involved in Occupy Wall Street, and he's now doing fascinating things of kind of reclaiming a generative digital world. And he talked about how the critique of people like him, of the church, is that it doesn't act enough like a church, right? So he talked about after Hurricane Sandy in New York, and and this was also true in Minneapolis after George Floyd was murdered and there were buildings burned. Where did people retreat to give care? Mm-hmm. Churches. Right. Churches that aren't full on Sunday mornings anymore. But suddenly 
were doing what churches were born to do, right? And it was very practical care for the whole human being. So in my mind, what I think of as the analogy to this time in human history is actually the early monastic period. And that is my, you know, that's what I know best. And you know, you, you know, another kind of geographic cultural view of different reference points. Yeah. Yeah. Different reference points. But if I think about two millennia ago, there was one way to be religious and it was Christian and there was one way to be Christian, right? There wasn't even this diversity of denomination and the early monastics was a spiritual renewal movement that took itself outside the boundaries of that official church, that official religiosity, that also looked at the institution and said, you have betrayed your own highest values. And that recovered contemplative life. I mean, a thousand years after this thing started, that was just, you know, 10 people over here and 10 people there, you know, St. Benedict, he's one of the people who kind of kicked off the official monastic movement was not a big success story in his lifetime. You know, right. one of the communities he moved in with, like they tried to poison him. And he started, <laughs> but that rule has, has, has rippled through thousands of years of history. And it's, it's ripples are not just in religion, they're in life. Yeah. So what I like about that is it is a story about how change actually happens in our world. And it's a story about how we what looks most obvious is not necessarily the most important thing that's happening or the most efficacious thing that's happening. And I also hear echoes of this in these unchurched, you know, spiritual, not religious, unaffiliated, all of those names, nuns, but who are also kind of giving themselves over to how can they be part of the healing of our world. And they are rediscovering interior life and contemplative life. And they are looking for ritual and they are creating new forms of community. A phenomenon that to me kind of pulls all this together is this, this little movement called nuns and nuns. Have you yeah, heard of yeah. that? Katie Gordon is one of our Katie alum at Gordon. IFYC and she's okay, of she helped to start this. Yeah. In your lineage too. This fascinating and beautiful coming together of not N-O-N-E-S, young people who have not been religious in any traditional way, sitting at the feet of these monastic elders, these female monastics who in the West, their communities are literally dying. Like they are aging and their communities are dying. And yet what these women know about living, about about following the, the deepest truths um, about being of service to the larger culture and just about deep spiritual practice and the complex reality of spiritual community. And, and you have these friendships and this exchange of knowledge and of questions that to me just kind of embodies this thing I've been watching anyway. And I think it's happening in other places too, but it's very literal there. Yes. You know, my life, our lives, our world, has been shaped by that concrete service and that example, right? Uh, and I, I think to myself, I remember when I was deeply committed to very Dorothy Day type service, like on the ground in the hardest places. And I'd go to some of these places and I realized a Catholic sister has already gotten there first and has <laughs> built a preschool and a health clinic. And she's just been doing the work for 25 years. And when you show up, she'll wave and she'll welcome you. 
and she will take no credit. She's just there, right? right? She's just, and it's just, that's what inspired me about religion. Yeah. That's what inspired me about religion. Yeah. Krista Tippett, you are my friend. You are a light in the world. I'm going to ask you one last question. So let's get back to the historian for a moment who's listened to 25 years or 20 years of your, of your radio <laughs> show. And right. How does she describe who Krista Tippett is and, and, and what category you're in? And I want to give you a couple of reference points for this, right? I suppose it's accurate to say Jay-Z or Kanye West is a rapper, but it's probably narrow, right? Or to say that Jane Addams was a social worker, but it's probably narrow or to say Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor, right? So somebody could describe you as a radio host or a journalist, it's probably narrow, right? So the historian a hundred years from now, does this work on your show and your discourse? And she says, Krista Tippett was a blank. <laughs> Has anybody asked you this question, Ibu? No. This is a tough one. Um, so much fun though, isn't it? Yeah. How am I going to ask you boring questions after you've been asking great questions oh, no. for 20 years? No. Okay. Um, I, I'm tempted to say a listener, but I actually think that's also too simple. So maybe <laughs> they would say something about me as a conversationalist, but that not just being about, about the transmission of words or even ideas, but a conversation that really honored the power of our words and our questions and the mystery of what happens when we, when we freely exchange those with each other as one of the most important capacities we possess as human beings. We walk around using words all the time. And I, I would like to think that, that this conversation that I have conducted and also tried, I think, to model and kind of put out there uh, alongside all of the other ways we do dialogue and speech is, is elevating in some way or, or anchoring in some way. I kind of like that. Krista mm -hmm. Tippett, conversation holder. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Among the many things I appreciate about Krista is her historical view from the time in which few quote-unquote serious people seem to be taking religion seriously, namely the end of the Cold War, through the 9-11 era, when religion was everywhere discussed, but mostly understood as a bomb of destruction, to now. I love Krista's insight that we live at a time in which our knowledge of ourselves and the known universe is expanding exponentially, and our spirits seem to be trying to keep up. But it's that spirit that makes us human, and we better tend to it. Our diverse religious traditions are like nutrients for the soul. If you'll allow me to extend the metaphor, Krista is the one who's been tending this garden in our culture for decades. I am grateful to her for our friendship and for the gift she has given to our culture. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is brought to you by a generous grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Interfaith America with Ibu Patel is a production by Interfaith America and Philo's Future Media. I'm your host, Ibu Patel. The Interfaith America team is Silma Suba, executive producer, Monique Parsons, senior producer, 
Carrie Simon, coordinating producer. Neil Agarwal, researcher. Johanna Zorn provided editorial support. Production by Philo's Future Media Team. Keisha T.K. Dutess, executive producer. Manny Faces, producer and audio editor. Share this show with a friend. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Find more resources on religious diversity, racial equity, bridging and belonging, Dean and Dunya, faith and world at www.interfaithamerica.org.